This is the ARC Energy Ideas Podcast with Peter Terzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the ARC Energy Ideas Podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Terzakian. Welcome again. Well, we've had some explosive news on the weekend. Well, pardon that pun. We had the attacks on the Saudi oil facilities. We've got to talk about that, not only from the current perspective. We're going to talk about it as a blast from the past, because the last time we had this sort of action was in the 1970s. And then we'll wrap up and talk about the Energy Disruptors Conference, which was held here in Calgary this week. So 100 million barrels a day is roughly what we consume, Jackie. And how much was taken off the market overnight? 5.7 million barrels a day on Saturday afternoon, or about 5% of all world supply. So this is a big outage, 5.7 million barrels a day. To put it in historical context, we haven't had an outage of this magnitude ever. And the closest was very similar, but it was in 1978, the Iranian yeah, Revolution. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. But, you know, it's interesting. We've seen Venezuela outages. We've seen Libya. Oh, in the last, uh, what is it, 5, 10 years but when it hits Saudi Arabia, the headline producer in the world, that's when the shockwaves go out. It really does. And, and also because Saudi Arabia is the country that has the spare capacity. So today, mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia, before this incident, was expected to have around 2 million barrels a day of spare capacity. So that's basically, they could literally turn on the valves and, in theory, bring that supply very quickly to the market. So when they lose a bunch of uh, facilities and, and things like that, people start to worry, do we have any spare capacity? So like, if right. there's another outage somewhere else in the world, would we have anything to cover? Right. So Saudi Arabia is more significant when it has losses because it's the one that's supposed to make up for everybody else's losses and suddenly now it doesn't have production. Right. So things are tight. When are we expecting the production to come back? Well, yeah, there wasn't a lot of news over the weekend. And Monday, prices ran up quite a bit. Mm -hmm. But then on Tuesday, they came out, the energy minister, saying that they had about half of the capacity back online. And the expectation is they could have it all back by the end of September. Now, a lot of doubts, if you look at social media, a lot of doubts that that they can actually recover this and, and feeling that, you know, there's a lot of pressure in Saudi Arabia to show that there's no issues and that the supply will come back. So I think there's there's still concerns. But the Oil price definitely moved. Just to put it in perspective, on Monday, the first day of trading after the incident, oil price went up about 12% or $8. Mm-hmm. And then when they announced that that they were going to have half the capacity back already and the rest by the end of the month, it fell and, and basically we're up about $5. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I'm not a facilities engineer, but I tend to side with the Twitterati, you know, <laughs> sort, of, sort of being very skeptical. I mean, I saw the satellite photos of these precision strikes on these big spheres, you know, these special steel spheres that probably get made in places like Korea or Japan. Like, it's not like you keep these things on the shelf and it's not like you send the welder over and say, hey, patch that up, buddy. Like, Yeah, they, they're high-pressure vessels that, yeah. you know, need to be replaced, you know, yeah, just so, uh, I don't know. I mean, them. I think this yeah. is a, a longer-term proposition. I'm not saying that there isn't enough in storage. I mean, there's enough in storage to last, you know, several months, what is about 60 days coverage? Oh, I mean, there is a lot of oil in storage, and I think we should get to the spare capacity and the storage topic. Mm -hmm. Um, But first, before we get there, I wanted to talk a bit about the strikes, and there was just some news. The Saudi Defense Group had a press conference and showed some of the equipment that they had found. 18 drones and seven cruise missiles is what what hit them. And so that can do a lot of damage, especially because it seemed like these were uh, definitely knew where their targets were um, and could um, bring down that much capacity that quickly. They're also saying that they think it came from Iran, 
they think it came from the north, mm-hmm. not from Yemen. So just for context, there's been some debate about, you know, is this Iran that's done this or is this a rebel group in Yemen? And most people, including the American president, uh, seem to think, and, and also the Secretary of State, mm-hmm. Mike Pompeo, think it was coming from Iran. Uh, Secretary of State today called this an act of war. Trump said he was locked and loaded and waiting to hear from Saudi Arabia uh, what he should do. So I guess, you know, I think the point is that this was pretty sophisticated. They obviously were attacking infrastructure that they were pretty sophisticated in terms of knowing its implications. Knowing where to put the the targets. I mean, I think this is the point is that, I mean, this was a full-scale assault, 25 unmanned aircraft, basically kamikaze diving into these facilities. And I think the broader issue here is that it happened and it can happen again. I mean, right. this, this story is far from over. I and, think so. Uh, where, you know, Trump said he's locked and loaded, Pompeo is showing the photos and all, all the rest of it. I mean, we don't know how much more this is going to escalate. And it's hard for me to believe that things are going to calm down anytime soon in terms of the military tensions, given that the fingers and sophistication of the attacks are pointing towards Iran. Yeah, well, in fact, actually, this news conference said that they actually had some information from looking at the equipment that it actually did come from Iran, the data that was found uh, on board some of uh, the Mm -hmm. equipment. So what I think is going on is Saudi's trying to put together. You know, I think the other thing for me is when I first heard about this on, like, Saturday afternoon, oh, a couple of drone attacks. Like, we've had a few of these, right? They had a drone try to take out a pipeline. But I I didn't actually appreciate that drones could do that level of damage, uh, that that they had that ability. Yeah, I mean, this highlights another thing. I mean, basically, these Saudi oil facilities in the desert are like a naked exposure to any sort of aerial assault. And Iran is just across the Straits of Hormuz. It's not very far, uh, or, or, or across the Gulf. And I mean, it's just, uh, obviously the calculations have to be very, very delicate in terms of potential retaliatory action against Iran. I mean, you can see the whole area just flare up. And then all of a sudden you have the whole Straits of Hormuz choked off for a while, which is what, 20, 25 million barrels right. a day. Or even like supply in Iran or in Kuwait, yeah. uh, neighboring yeah. countries, UAE. So, yeah, I think that is uh, that is definitely not being factored into the oil price today. Mm-hmm. I think what's being factored in is exactly the outage that we're seeing right now. But I think that geopolitical risk for the oil market should have gone up. Now, It's about it, what, I mean, it's sort of leveling off at around $5 a barrel of sort of this sort of risk premium plus shortage uncertainty. Yeah, we're, we're, we're basically, I mean, honestly, we're about $3 a barrel right now over where we were before. And it it, it peaked out at about $5 increase when, yeah. when the outage had actually occurred. Yeah, and so. I mean, in my opinion, the market's being a little nonchalant. I know there's lots of oil sloshing around in storage and places out there, but uh, any escalation, I think that'll be the thing that'll take the price of oil much higher any escalation of this conflict. Well, and I agree with you because let's talk about, you asked about storage and spare capacity. So how much spare capacity really exists in the world today is the first question. So before this attack on the weekend, there was about 3 million barrels a day in OPEC. That doesn't include Iran because we're, Iran actually has 2 million barrels a day of spare capacity, but because of all the sanctions, we're assuming that isn't available to the oil yeah, markets. Yeah. So outside of Iran, if you assume the Saudi piece is gone because they're having these infrastructure issues, then there's only 1 million barrels a day of spare capacity. It's really yeah. nothing. I mean, on 100 million barrels a day, 1% of basically buffer. And without this, it's what, 2% or something like that. If you think about other systems of supply, 
manufacturing, electrical power, all sorts of things. Usually, there's at least 10% reserve for maintenance, for potential unexpected outages, and so on. So this is, I mean, oil has always been an extremely tight supply chain system. Right. Uh, and, and this really takes out any spare capacity. Yeah, I mean, one million barrels a day. But here's the difference, though. We have a lot of storage of crude oil, mm-hmm. and that doesn't always get accounted for. We're, most industries, by the way, don't even have any spare capacity, and no. you know they have no. storage, whether it be the coal piles and other things that are available to them. But storage is actually quite significant. And I know we're going to talk a little bit later about the 1970 oil shocks, but what's different today relative to back then is we have a lot of data on how much storage we have and a lot of different sources. So to give you an example, if storage had to cover all 5.7 million barrels a day, of outage, which we know we are not even going to have an outage that big at this point. But if it had to, Saudi alone could cover that for 30 days. China Hmm. alone could cover that for like 170 days. Hmm. The commercial stocks in in the um, developed countries, the OECD countries, could cover it for 200 days almost. And then there's the strategic petroleum reserves, which are an addition, which is like another 200 days. So, you know, just those four sources could cover this type of an outage for 600 days, like mm-hmm. almost two years. years yeah. Now, the reality is I don't think we can actually, there's operational constraints. Strategic petroleum reserves hasn't ever like flowed 5 million barrels a day, right? There are like constraints no. to how much you can pull out of storage. Yeah. Um, but, but there's just a lot of oil in storage and that also gives security to the markets. Yeah, it gives security. I mean, I would argue that uh, if the situation gets serious, you know, you get, say, 10 plus million barrels a day taken off market because of military escalation, then I think people start to think twice, they start hoarding, basically. Right. You know, yeah. think they, they, they just sort of the fear of, okay, how long is this really going to last? And Yeah, they're not going to allow exports yeah. to the extent that they would have before. Yeah, like it's an emergency. Countries. It'll, it'll yeah. turn into an emergency. $5 a barrel has been stapled on to reflect the geopolitical premium. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And and it is a very different world. I was thinking a little bit about the Libya outage. So back in 2011, when I was very involved in, in following oil markets as I am today, we had about a 1.25 million barrel a day outage in Libya because of the civil war that erupted mm-hmm. in Libya. And oil price didn't go up all in one day, but over the course of about a month, it went from about $90 per barrel to $100 immediately, and finally at $110 dollars a barrel. And at that time, I actually looked this up today, there was 4 million barrels a day of spare capacity in OPEC. Mm-hmm. And all that storage I just talked about, we pretty much had that as well. So in that world, the market reacted very differently to an outage uh, than when we're seeing today. Yeah, but today, I mean, the other dynamic is that people believe that sources like the U.S. Permian Basin and others can ramp up, you know, not immediately, But again, this is the whole idea of there's no shortage of oil, therefore the response today is much more muted. And then, of course, there's the, I think, still the concern about potential economic recession, substitution of demand by electric vehicles and all sorts of things. Yeah, it's a different era now. It's it's a different era. I mean, back then it was like uh, China is going to grow forever in terms of their demand for these things and there aren't the cheap oil is gone and there's no Peak fast oil. oil and, yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk about, I mean, we had Eric Nuttall on last week talking about the equities and we were somewhat the three of us together sort of lamenting the disconnect between the oil and gas equities, especially in the Canadian market and the disconnect to oil prices. You know, in other words, oil prices go up and the stocks 
do nothing or go down. So what happened? Well, they proved that there's some sign of life here in the equity markets. So on Monday, equity markets in Canada, the the index that tracks a group of upstream companies, went up about 10%. So we finally saw some some connection between mm-hmm. oil price moving up and equities falling. Now, on Tuesday, when we learned that they were going to bring a lot of supply back, they fell a little bit, but are still up 6% relative to last Friday, Friday the 13th, before the attack. Mm-hmm. So uh, we got a bit of a gain on the value of equities. I mean, they're still woefully low uh, mm-hmm. compared to their uh, historical valuations, but right. it, it is good to see that there's some movement up hmm. with the equity prices yeah. and the oil prices. Yeah, well, I know Eric listens to this podcast, so... We can't attribute it to his positive sentiments about the industry <laughs> because it got overshadowed by the uh, by the Saudi events. So, the 1970s, yeah. we have seen this before. And I think it's worth a mention in terms of what happens when you have this sort of thing happen, especially because, as, as we said earlier, the story is not over. There could be full-scale escalation in terms of an attack on Iran, and then Iran can start lobbing missiles, and then the whole thing escalates into something much bigger. In the 1970s, we had two episodes. We had the 1973 Arab oil embargo, and then we had the 1979 Iranian revolution followed by the Iran-Iraq war. In that second instance, there was almost 7 million barrels a day taken off the market. Not as rapidly. Mm -hmm. Over the course of those numerous events. yeah, 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 but nevertheless, it was a real peel back in the availability of supply. And so, you know, some of the lessons back then, because there was real concern about scarcity, a lot of anxiety about dependence on the Middle East, not a lot of domestic growth, say, in key Western economies, uh, the United States, uh, certainly Europe had no oil production to speak of, to the Japanese, which was a fairly big economy within the OECD back then. And so, the incident back in the 70s, the oil price shocks led to a real period of public policy driven largely by energy security concerns. And so what we saw was, for example, we had the Fuel Use Act of 1978, which basically in simplistic terms said that uh, in the United States, they were not going to burn any more oil in their power plants. And that was really significant because 17% of power generation came from burning oil. Today, there's none. So ban the use of oil in power generation. And and so there was a big substitution. And there was a technology that was ready and waiting to step in, and that was nuclear power. And so the policy initiatives really allowed nuclear power and interestingly more coal to come into the market and a little bit of LNG in Japan and push oil quite easily out of the power generation markets. And so there was a reduction of dependency and there was a fairly rapid reduction of oil consumption, actually top-line decline in oil consumption of about 6 million barrels a day between 1979 and I think it was 83 or 84. There was also policy on the demand side. There was uh, the introduction of the fuel economy standards in cars, 55 mile an hour speed limits in the United States. Which is 88 kilometers an hour. Imagine if you were forced to go 88 kilometers an hour on the highways. If you were forced to today, you certainly wouldn't do it. But when you have fear of (laughs) scarcity and shortage, uh, it was uh, it was an easier sell to the public. So my point is is that you know you really need to see shortages and fear of scarcity to trigger really major policy actions and attitudinal shifts in consumption, 
which we also saw during that period, big drive towards efficiency and so on. And the, and the voters and the consumers, yeah. they're both, they were supportive of these policies, like supportive of driving smaller cars, which today, if you told everyone in Canada, you have to get rid of your F-150 and drive yeah. like a very small <laughs> yeah. version, there'd be like a lot of people that would never yeah. vote for you. Back then, because of the shock that people went through, That's right. uh, people were on board with yeah. the efficiency? They, they largely were. I mean, I lived through that. I was much younger, of course. But there was genuine anxiety about this dependency and the potential for future shocks, which was an impetus to push through a lot of policy. And in places like Europe, uh, what they did was when the price of oil started coming down in the mid-1980s, they did not bring down the price of gasoline, effectively put a tax on it. Uh, to keep it at the high levels right. it was. And then they took the the revenues from that and plowed a lot of it into public transportation and things like that. So there was a real big response in terms of dealing with this geopolitical energy scarcity dynamic. And, and, and why that's relevant is for us to understand today that the narratives surrounding the need to introduce policy for climate change and so on, you know, in my opinion, uh, there's certainly a lot of talk about the urgency, but in terms of people actually being open to large-scale changes as were made back in the 1970s, it's not clear to me that that can be done, unfortunately, without these sorts of military and scarcity dynamics. Right. And another point you talked about with the power generation, you know, 20% of electrical power, uh, you know, you can over a course of five or six years shut those plants down and construct new yeah. power plants and actually substitute that out. Yeah. Today, we don't really have the low-hanging fruit of switching no. out power. No. It's about changing these vehicles and changing, you know, the, the planes that we use and make everything more efficient. Yeah. And it, it just doesn't happen at that pace because yeah. you have these assets that you paid for that have 10 in the case of some industrial equipment, 20-plus-year lives, and, it, and you don't switch those out until they come to the end of their useful life. So it's very hard to see such a fast change yep. when you look practically at what can be done. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And I think we should talk about the energy security issues as they relate to Canada. We talked about it on a podcast several weeks ago. Uh, we had a column that was written, which I think we can we can post again. Yeah, actually, and, by the way, uh, I forgot to mention what we just talked about was a column that you wrote this yeah, week as well. And yeah. so we will post that column, which was called Want a Real Energy Transition? Start a War. So we'll have that one as well as this uh, yeah. energy security article that I'll post as well. Okay, good. So it is of consequence to Canada because we don't have a lot of alternatives in the event of actual true disruption. Now, we're going to see a little bit of disruption, I think, with uh, some of the Saudi imports, potentially. This is a concern to Canada because we still import how much from Saudi? About 20% of all our imports in 2018. So that's in the range of like 100,000 barrels 100, a day. 100,000 barrels a day. So it's consequential. Uh, but what this event should expose and highlight is that we are vulnerable, right? Because if you do get into a full-fledged confrontation with Iran and there is a real outage, then again, again I, know, I know you said that there's lots of oil around, but I just take it back to the 1970s, a hoarding mentality starts to set in. Well, and, and, and you can't get all that oil out of storage at that right. rate, right? right? So, you know, what, how much can really come out of storage at what pace is a bit unknown, actually. Right. So I, I totally agree that there would be 
uh, real concerns, there would be probably some actual physical shortage and somebody would be short. Yeah. And, and then and we've got these line up. reversal issues, which yeah. we talked about. We don't need to review it. Go to, go, go to the website and read the article. Or, uh, yeah, I mean, from, we all know we, Energy East was canceled, so we don't have a pipeline that can get oil no. out to Eastern Canada. And uh, we did have a pipeline that could get out to Montreal via the United States, mm-hmm. but we don't have that anymore. We even have surplus capacity right now, right. but we don't have the pipelines to get it to market. Now we have rail, and I think that will increase in terms of how much rail that we can move over the coming year. But it is kind of frustrating to see like a situation like today where we have pent up here supply in Western Canada. We have a curtailment well, on, and uh, we're not able to supply the world. Well, in the, in, in the event of uh, further shortages or further outages, I guess would be a better word, Canada could not even help itself because we don't have that east-west pipeline, let alone supplying others. I mean, about the only country we can supply is our current foreign customer, the United States. Yeah, that's right. That's it. So we want to talk about the Energy Disruptors Conference uh, held this week in Calgary. And I know, Peter, you were a speaker at it, but there was a lot of different topics. Was it anything from electric cars to climate change? I went went to a session actually on food and food mm. security in a world of climate change. You were on a hydrogen panel. I wanted to ask you a bit about how that went. Yeah, it was really interesting to talk about hydrogen. Uh, you know, I studied hydrogen 20 years ago, financed a number of companies in, in, a, in a past career, and it really didn't go anywhere. But uh, talk about hydrogen is coming back in, in many different ways. And so the panel that I was moderating talked about hydrogen, interestingly, from a supply standpoint, that some of our oil fields here in Alberta are potentially conducive to being able to produce hydrogen. In other words, an oil field can be turned into a hydrogen field because hydrocarbons, right? right? Hydro is hydrogen, carbon is carbon. Uh, that there's uh, some local companies, uh, one of them is Proton Technologies, which uh, we had a panel member, that uh, they're figuring out ways of being able to take the hydrogen out of the oil field and leave the carbon in. So are they creating a reaction in the reservoir? Basically, there's a reaction underground where the hydrogen is separated. And because hydrogen is the lightest atom, it uh, is buoyant, comes up to the top of the reservoir. And then using special membranes, you can just take the, uh, basically take the hydrogen off the top and bring it to the surface. And that's really important because, uh, you know, some of the numbers are throwing around and it varies. It's early days to really know what the competitiveness is, but dramatic, potentially, you know, one third the cost of other methods of producing hydrogen. Right. And a, really a truly, common ways from natural gas, right? Yeah, which, which yeah. generates emissions and so on and so forth. So the ability to bring just the hydrogen out of the ground and then take it to the applications. And so we had a couple of other people on the panel who talked about uh, using it in fuel cells, in niche applications, and trucking. Uh, but also, interestingly, if you have a pure and cheap source of hydrogen, you can make ammonia. And a lot of people don't know that ammonia can be used as a fuel. And in fact, uh, there are engine companies that are modifying their internal combustion engines to be able to burn ammonia in big uh, ships, for example, and things like that. Okay. And be, would that uh, be zero emissions yeah, it would be as t- well? Yeah, it would be zero emissions in okay. terms of carbon. because, And especially if you get the hydrogen from the hydrogen field into the supply chain, make ammonia, and then into uh, internal combustion engines to turn wheels, propellers, what have you. Oh, sounds uh, fascinating. It sounds fascinating. Yeah. I mean, this is all, it's, it's all nascent stuff. It's all nascent stuff. But what it does highlight to me is how, our, how people are thinking about alternative energy systems as a whole, right? You mm-hmm. know, we always hear about uh, alternatives as just being wind and solar, but there's a lot more going on. 
in terms of the creativity that people are bringing to bear. And the creativity is even extending right to the source and people in companies thinking, well, okay, how can we put our oil fields to different use? Right. Yeah, an oil right. field can create right. hydrogen. And, and hydrogen has so many benefits, you know, when it comes to transportation, mm -hmm. because you could actually have a ship go across the world on hydrogen. Uh, you could have a, a semi-truck go across North America where mm. battery technology is kind of limited in range, right. right? And so there's right. been a lot of forecasts where hydrogen has to be part of that zero, net zero. Yes. And But there's always been an issue because the only economical yeah. way we have yeah. is to actually create hydrogen from natural gas, which creates yeah. CO2. So, yeah. Yeah. so that's really exciting that there are different yeah. pathways to yeah. net zero. Yeah, I don't think it's yeah. going to, you know, it's not something that's going to change the world overnight. But I think this is space to watch in terms of uh, where, where it could go, especially with increasing concerns about climate change uh, as we head into the 2020s and people looking for alternatives uh, in many dimensions. Well, I want to also talk about a new project that you introduced at the conference called Energy File. And so I want you to tell our listeners more about that. Yeah, this is a personal project that I've taken on. Oh, it's been going on for seven years. And I used the opportunity to be invited to Energy Disruptors. And they were really great about allowing me to give a soft launch. In other words, a sneak peek to this fairly large project. And so Energy File, Energy, P-H-I-L-E, file meaning aficionado or someone passionate about a subject, uh, is really my personal museum of energy objects and artifacts that uh, are also tied to stories, short stories about those objects. So you can think of it as a museum and a library and also a bit of a business school because there's lessons that come out of each of these stories. So I'm not going to say a lot more right now. Uh, I encourage people to go to energyfile.org. Energy file again is energyphile.org. Uh, there's a video there that uh, I showed, and there's a, a sample short story that you can download that's been recorded here by Bo Shaminsky at Dear Candy Studios, where we do our podcast. And uh, there's a lot more to come. Yeah, uh, and I definitely recommend listening to the audio file. It's um, If you're listening to a podcast, I know you like that kind of thing, and it's a great story, and the audio just kind of makes puts you really in, in the story, right? Yeah, yeah. thanks. And so yeah. sign up, and uh, we're going to be keeping people posted. We'll probably have the full launch of the full digital museum in uh, no later than February of next year. All right, and we'll talk more about that on the podcast as, as you unveil more of the information. Right? Yeah, I'm really excited about it. Okay, good. Well, hey, thanks everyone for joining our podcast this week. If you like the podcast, rate us on Twitter and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.